Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now, get ready to think. Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show where we tackle impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Now, as I record this, I am waiting for my family to get back home. Uh, They're out of the house right now, but as you know, these are the days when everybody's home uh, 24-7. As I record this, if you're watching this later, first of all, thank you for watching. We are still in the lockdown of, uh, of Illinois. And so the family could come barging in through the, uh, through the back door and into my house at any moment. And if, if they do so, you're going to hear a lot of those joyful noises that come along with having kids uh, yelling, uh, a lot of exuberation. So if that happens, just bear with me. Um, but we're actually handling a topic, which is, which I'm pretty excited about. And so I'm going to keep pressing on regardless. Um, I don't think I'm going to get to everything that I want to cover today, especially if some of you leave comments. I do want to try to interact with your comments, but um, there are 10 points I eventually want to get to. I'll probably get to like the first three or maybe four or five today, and then we'll have to do a follow-up on this another time. But uh, what, what am I talking about today? Well, what I'm going to be doing is something that is probably long overdue. And that is an interaction with, and to some extent, a rebuttal of a video that was put out by a guy named Hemant Mehta. If you don't know who that is, he is the self-titled friendly atheist. And um, I I have interacted with a little of his ideas um, in the past, really mostly just through watching some of his videos. And uh, if you ever watch any of his videos, they're they're fairly well done. They're simple. And he has a way of presenting his skepticism in a way it's friendly is really not the right word for it. Uh, as a matter of fact, he actually even, uh, he said in one interview that the reason why he called himself friendly is so that Christians would have to say that there's at least one atheist out there who's friendly and not because he himself is overly friendly. But I will say his videos are compelling. They're compelling enough that I felt like I needed to to respond to one of them today. And this is a video that um, Hemant put out on May 7th. And as I record this, today is May 19th, so it's 12 days old, a little less than two weeks. But I thought this would be a good time to interact with Hemant's thoughts because he is going on a show that I've been on in the past, which is the uh, your friendly a- your friendly neighborhood atheist. So you've got the friendly atheist going on the friendly neighborhood atheist, and um, I don't know what happens when you combine those two. You've got sort of a, a friendly sort of citywide atheism situation going on. Not sure what that entails, but uh, that's actually happening in about forty five minutes. So I've got about forty five minutes to lay out the points that Hemant is making in this video, and then to respond to as many as I can uh, in the time that I have. So the video that I'm going to be interacting with is called 10 Reasons People Are Leaving Christianity. 
Now, in this video, these aren't exactly arguments per se. They're more sort of phenomenological descriptions of why Hemant believes Christians are leaving Christianity, or, or you could say just more people are becoming uh, less affiliated with religion. And although they're not really arguments per se, Hemant is operating from a worldview that is atheistic. He calls himself an atheist. And uh, I would venture a guess as to say, you know, he believes these are good things. It's, it's a good thing that people are leaving the faith. He doesn't always come out and say that, but it's sort of implied in, in what he says. So first off, let me just say, I am recording this live. So if you can see me, hear me, um, go ahead and leave a comment in the, um, uh, right down below. And I'll try to interact with your comments and questions as we go. I can't promise I'll get to all of them, but um, please do leave your comments. And then uh, let me just also add the caveat. Please keep your comments clean. We've had to address this in the past. Clean comments only. All right. I want my kids to be able to watch this later on. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and get started with this video from earlier in May from Hemant Meta. And what we'll do is we'll play a little bit of it and um, and interact with it as we go. Okay. So 10 reasons people are leaving Christianity. For about two decades now, we've seen a really huge shift in this country when it comes to religious beliefs. A lot fewer Christians, a lot more people who just want nothing to do with organized religion. So why is this happening? I can boil it down to about 10 reasons. Number one, the internet. If you went to Sunday school as a kid, maybe you asked a question like, why do Adam and Eve have belly buttons in all the pictures? And the teacher didn't answer you, or she told you to just have faith. Okay, let's pause right here. Notice what uh, Hammond is doing here. He's, he's creating a situation, or he's describing a situation that probably, honestly, something similar has happened in many churches. Um, I'll share my experience with something similar soon. But uh, where you've got a Sunday school teacher who either can't or won't answer a question that a child is asking about something related to Christianity. But this is really the example. Why do Adam and Eve have belly buttons and all the paintings? Well, the good news for Hammond is we don't get our doctrine from Renaissance paintings of Adam and Eve. We get it from scripture. So uh, whether or not Adam and Eve had belly buttons is really kind of irrelevant to our faith. But I understand where he's going and as it continues to play, we'll see kind of where he's taking this argument. Or maybe you were older and you asked your pastor if Anne Frank, the Jewish girl with the diary in World War II, was burning in hell right now because she never accepted Jesus in her life. And he just gave you a weird look like you're not supposed to bring that up. But if you had doubts about religion, that's what you did. You asked your priest. You asked a religious leader. And rightly so. Let me just say, rightly so. That's exactly what you should do. That should be your first line of defense against uh, doubt and skepticism. Ask your pastor. Ask a, a Sunday school teacher. Ask someone who you trust with good answers. All right, here we go. Or you asked your parents who told you to ask the priest. It was really the only option you had. But once... Okay, quick side note there. Parents, we need to be equipped to answer our kids' questions. Someday I'm going to have my wife on to talk about... Uh, the importance of doing apologetics in the home. Not today, though. So keep watching. There was a way to ask questions about religion in private, online. It became much easier to recognize the problems with faith. 
and that you're not alone in questioning your beliefs. Notice, well, I, I should let this play because I want you to see the whole thing. But he says, once it became possible to ask questions in private, it became easier to see the problems with faith. So he's presupposing that there are problems with faith and that if you have access to more information and the privacy to be able to ask those questions, even though he just presented three scenarios in which kids were asking questions to a pastor, to a Sunday school teacher, and to parents. Um, so it, it seemed like he was presenting a, a case that uh, not that you didn't have privacy, but just that the people you asked didn't have answers. But now he's saying it's important to have that privacy. So a little bit of mixed messaging here, but that's okay. We'll, we'll keep going. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt and let's let him wrap this up. Just ask ex-Mormons who have read the CES letter or Christian fundamentalists who finally saw easy to understand explanations for how science works and why we don't owe our existence to Noah and his ark. Having information at your fingertips is the worst thing that could have happened to religion because religion historically relied on people just believing what the priest told them. You're not supposed to figure religion out on your own. You're supposed to go through them. There's a reason the Catholic Church feared the invention of the printing press. People reading the Bible for themselves was not good news. The internet was an even bigger deal for people who grew up in insular communities. Ultra-Orthodox Jews who were not supposed to access that sort of information about the outside world. Young Muslims from conservative families who saw that life was pretty good even if you don't live under Islam. Mormons who looked up Joseph Smith and realized all kinds of surprises. Today, a kid sitting in the pews because her parents made her go to church can fact check the pastor on her phone in real time and know he's lying while his mouth is still moving. Google is religion's greatest enemy since Charles Darwin. Number two. Okay, we'll pause it right there. Let's break this down a little bit. So first of all, uh, he's, he's making digs. He's sort of lumping Roman Catholicism and Christianity and Mormonism all together. And for an atheist who was not brought up in the church as Hemet was not, I kind of get that. But of course, from a Bible-believing um, Protestant evangelical perspective, there's no way I would lump uh, anything like Mormonism, Catholicism, and, and Protestant Christianity all together. They're, they're just not the same kind of animal there. Um, as a matter of fact, some of those other views have more in common with atheism than they do with uh, biblical Christianity. But that's that's another that's another podcast. In fact, I've done a, a similar podcast to that. Um, by the way, if you're watching and you can see and hear the video that I'm playing, please let me know. I've been having some trouble with my audio in the past, so if you can hear the the audio, please just let me know. Yes, I can see. Yes, I can hear. Thanks. So, what what Hammond is saying here is that um, the internet and Google are the worst things to happen, the worst enemies of religion since, uh, what did he say, since um, the printing, no, since Charles Darwin. And he, he mentioned how the Catholic Church didn't want the printing press to uh, become popular because you're not supposed to figure out religion for yourself. Well, here's the thing. He's absolutely right that there have been moments in history, uh, in fact, long spans of history, in which those within religious power structures have suppressed knowledge. And the Catholic Church during the Dark Ages 
um, and sort of the, the high Middle Ages is a great example of that. But what happened when you had the printing press and you and you had the Bible written in the vernacular, the common language of people, is people did test the ideas of the Catholic Church, the, the dominant structure, and they saw the flaws, they saw the inconsistency between not they didn't see the the falsehood of Christianity, but the, instead they saw the falsehood and the inconsistency between what was being taught to them, you know, the sale of indulgences to get out of purgatory, things like that, and what the Bible was actually teaching. Um, and actually, it was from that movement, from from the end of the High Middle Ages, moving into the Reformation period, it's from that movement, that, that ad fontes movement, back to the sources that's associated with the Renaissance and the Reformation, that gave birth to the scientific revolution, that gave birth to men like Tycho Brahe and Isaac Newton and Johannes Kepler. These are men who, drawing on their biblical faith, started the scientific revolution. So this idea that that religion suppresses knowledge, and if you have more knowledge and greater access to knowledge, suddenly you're going to uh, you're going to end up debunking Christianity. Well, it's just not the case. That history has shown that's not the case. What happens when you have greater access to knowledge and information through something like the internet or the printing press is just that, you have greater access to information. But Hemant himself would not say that everything you read on the internet is true, or that simply by giving people more access to different ideas, suddenly now they will automatically choose truth. And the reason why I know he wouldn't say this is because he has a video entitled, What Atheists Have in Common with Flat Earthers, something along those lines. And in that video, he disavows flat earthism, and rightly so. But Flat Earthism is another one of these ideas that have gained popularity due to the, the rise of the internet. So if you're going to say, well, the internet is responsible for a rise in religious unaffiliation or atheism, and that's a good thing, then you, you have to deal with the fact that other movements, which you would disavow, have also risen in prominence due to the internet. So, um, so it's it's not a one-to-one -one correlation between, well, greater access to information means more people will choose truth. Now, um, how should we look at this and uh, how shall how should we evaluate sort of the presuppositions that uh, that Hemant is making here? Well, he's um, he's, of course, coming at this from an atheistic perspective. And given atheism, um, what is your principle? for for judging what's true and what's false. How do you judge which ideas on the internet are wise and which ones are foolish, which ones are true and which ones are in error? Well, you need to have a plumb line for truth. You need to have a standard by which you judge truth from error. Um, everyone needs to have some standard. So Hammond being a, he's a math teacher, um, he's an evolutionist, um, and uh, I, I don't know his exact epistemology, but let's say it's something akin to scientism, uh, where you believe that science is sort of the ultimate arbiter of truth, or maybe let's say something like science and reason working together. Well, if that's the case, then um, as Alvin Plantinga has shown, coupling evolutionism, uh, belief in evolution, and atheism um, doesn't comport with scientism. It actually doesn't comport with science at all. And the reason for that is because if you believe that you 
are an evolved ape and that there is no God, that God is not guiding that evolutionary process such that there's a, there's a set outcome that God was aiming for. You know, um, God intended to make people in his image, even if through an evolutionary process. Well, then what you have to assume is that all of your truth-seeking faculties, the reason that you want to use to judge those true and false ideas on the internet, those are only evolved for survival, not for true beliefs, generating true beliefs, not for actual truth-seeking. What that means is you now have an undercutting defeater for all your beliefs, including your belief in atheism. If you believe that we are the result of time and chance acting on matter through an unguided process, you have no reason to believe in atheism or, or, or really to believe in anything, to believe in science, to believe in evolution. You just don't, you don't have, um, you have an, you have an undercutter for an undercutting defeater for all your beliefs. Why should we trust the conclusions of evolved Ponska? So this is Hemant's problem. Now, um, from a from a biblical perspective, from a biblical perspective, God designed our minds. Genesis one twenty seven says we are made in God's image. God wants us to use our minds to evaluate the truth. As a matter of fact, in First John, the book of First John, it uh, the Bible says we are to not believe every spirit, but to test the spirits and to see whether they are true. And so First uh, John 4, 1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Well, how are we supposed to test these ideas? F from a biblical perspective, we start with the presupposition that God is real and that our best attitude towards God is one of reverent worship. That's why the Bible says in first, or in Proverbs 1, verse 7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9, 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why the fear of the Lord? Because the fear of the Lord rightly places our self-concept in the context of um, of the absolute. We ourselves are finite, and we recognize that we don't possibly have omniscience about the universe. We can't know everything, and therefore we are reliant upon God and his revelation for that absolute starting point, that, that universal starting point or reference point for knowledge. An atheist like Hammett Metta does not have that absolute starting point. And so for him, it's whatever seems best to me, that's uh, that's that's how I'll judge truth from error. And that's not a scientific way of going about um, uh, seeking knowledge. We're going to talk more about science as we go. But um, to sort of finalize my analysis of this point, Hammett says that the reason why people are walking away from Christianity more is because of the internet. That very well could be. But it's not an automatic thing. The internet gives you access to atheist thought. It also gives you access to Christian apologetics. Uh, it gives you access to sermons. It gives you access to scripture. I use my Bible app on my phone every day. I you, I look up websites like gotquestions.org or carm.org, C-A-R-M, the Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, all the time. Um, you can go to websites like mine, the Think the Think Institute. So, the fact that we have the internet only means that we have access to more information faster. We still need a standard by which we can judge whether it's true or false, and we need God. Um, let me say this: judging truth from error is 
something that a Christian can do with a solid foundation of epistemology of knowledge. Unfortunately, the atheist is left without that standard, without that starting point. And so um, while Hemet might seem very confident in his ability to judge truth from error using the internet, uh, he's actually cut off his own argument at the knees, um, taking away his own standard. So again, let me know what you think of this. Leave a comment below and I'll try to interact with those towards the end. All right, let's let's move along. Let's talk about politics. I'm not going to have as much to say about this one, but um, but we'll we'll see what he has to say and we'll interact with it. Politics. Look, it's no secret I'm a liberal, but I do think the merging of white evangelical Christianity with the Republican Party especially in the past two decades when the Republican presidents we've had have been such disasters, has been bad for both sides. It's already hurting evangelicals. Their numbers are dropping. I can only hope they drag the GOP down with them in the long term. Think about this. Friendly. George W. Bush entered office in 2001 with the help of conservative Christians. He embraced their movement. He talked about his relationship with God all the time. Then he limited stem cell research to avoid upsetting the anti-abortion crowd. He nominated anti-gay justices to the Supreme Court. Okay, let's pause right here because we've already hit on two moral issues that um, that are bound up with politics. So... Hemant is calling out what he calls white evangelicals, which dividing people up by their skin color, not sure how helpful that is. That's He's really borrowing from critical race theory there. Um, this idea that uh, something about whiteness or the color of your skin has anything to do with your political views. But uh, but let's go along with him here for the sake of argument. He's, he talks about white evangelicals being married and, and tied to the Republican Party. And he, he talks about George W. Bush and um, and and how George W. Bush banned stem cell research, okay, or limited stem cell research. Um, in a minute, he's going to talk about how George W. Bush was famously ignorant. Look, uh, oh, and and how he uh, opposed LGBT rights. Now, for some reason, Hemant didn't give the full list of um of letters in that acronym lgbtqiia plus etc um it's actually getting to the point where it's almost impossible to give all the letters and hopefully i did i'm i'm not sure if there's there've been more added but um but the two issues he brings up stem cell research and uh what are sometimes called gay rights um hemant is sort of assuming that he's operating from this neutral perspective where any reasonable person would look at an issue like stem cell research, which is done. The kind of stem cell research research that was limited by George W. Bush was, um, was research being done on aborted unborn children. So this idea that uh, this is just this neutral research that was being done doesn't actually comport with reality because when you allow stem cell research on aborted fetuses, what you're doing is you're profiting scientifically or many times financially as there's, uh, as Planned Parenthood or, or whoever is selling these unborn children and their body parts. Um, that's a whole another conversation. I'm actually going to get into a conversation about atheism, sorry, about abortion on Wednesday with, uh, with Rafe tomorrow for Worldview Wednesday, Pastor Rafe. But, 
Um, when it comes to abortion and sexuality, um, and and everything that's bound up with that, of course, evangelical Christians are going to have views on this. Just like an, uh, a mainline Christian is going to have a view on this. Just like an atheist is going to have a view. And the issue is everybody's approaching the public sphere of politics, starting from some presupposition, starting from some worldview, some epistemology, some some moral framework. And, um, and so, of course, evangelical Christians are going to oppose stem cell research on aborted fetuses because it adds a rationale or a justification to the killing of an unborn child. Biblically speaking, that's not allowable for us. We, we are, we are, uh, we believe that the, that life begins at conception. The Bible teaches that in Psalm 139, um, uh, in the book of Jeremiah, in um, uh, Exodus 21, I believe, um, even in the, the, narratives of, of Christ, the ad, Advent narratives of Jesus Christ, where you've got John the Baptist moving in the womb. So we believe that. And then the Bible also proscribes or prohibits murder. So put those two together. You've got a human life in the womb. You shall not murder. Put those together. Abortion's off the table for us, as well as anything else that would justify that murder um, that, that is abortion. So I don't, I don't understand why Hemant would be surprised at this he might not agree. He's welcome to disagree, but this is what politics is. It's people meeting together. Aristotle, actually I have his book right here in the Nicomachean ethics. Aristotle describes politics or political science as um, the inquiry into what is the greatest good for humanity, for the greatest good for mankind. And so um, I, we don't believe in, in America, the system doesn't work where only one side gets to present their view and, and limit the other side. In America, we come together and everybody has his, has his opportunity to advocate for his position. So, of course, Christians are going to be uh, pro-supporting the life of the unborn child. And when it comes to homosexuality and marriage and heterosexuality, the Bible teaches that God created man and woman. I mean, um, Chuck Colson used to say, stand a man and a woman up next to each other with no clothes on, and you'll see pretty quickly how God designed the bi biology to work together. So we believe that. We believe that what the Bible teaches is in accordance with biology. It's in accordance with morality. Um, and we're, of course, deriving our morality and our, our um, conclusions, our political conclusions, from our worldview, which is described and bound up with our biblical faith. That shouldn't be surprising to anybody. Um, What's what's surprising is when you have someone who is cobbling together a worldview based on what seems best to him with no absolute standard, why he would look down on someone who has an absolute standard as being somehow backwards or hip hypocritical or immoral, which we're going to talk about morality and hypocrisy in uh, in just a few minutes. So um, so I can't go along with Hemant on this one. Um, I don't know if he's surprised that Christians are trying to act in a Christian way, or if he just disagrees, but uh, he seems to have a problem with that. Uh, not sure why he does, but maybe maybe someday he could explain that. Um, we do have a couple of comments here. So let me just pause. We've got a comment from Prince Maish Karachi. Sorry if I mispronounced your name there, who says this, quite frankly, Christian apologetics are leading Christians away from Christianity. 
Think about it. A Christian's comes along, a Christian probably, a Christian comes along and hears all these reasons for God. Then they start digging deeper. Then little by little, they start questioning. Uh, well, it sounds like the Christian is already questioning uh, if they're hearing reasons for God, but yes, they start questioning. And um, Prince, I'm not I'm not sure where the the argument is here. Um, I mean, I would I would of course hold that the more you dig and the more you see the uh, not only the evidence for biblical Christianity, but also the preconditions that are necessary to even ask the questions: belief in logic, belief in morality, belief in you know mathematics or the intelligibility of the universe or the meaningfulness of human experience. These are all. Um, presuppositions that are in perfect accordance with the biblical worldview and are not in accordance, in fact, actually lead to some vast contradictions in, with other worldviews. So Prince, I wonder what your worldview is. What do you, are you an atheist? Are you a uh, Muslim? Are you, you know, what's, what's your worldview? Um, but then he also asks, is miscarriage also abortion? Is whose fault is it? Um, no, miscarriage is not an abortion. Um, no. Whose who's fault is it? Well, God holds life and death. The Bible does teach that. And um, and so what that means is you and I will inevitably die someday. Um, the next question you need to ask is, if God is in control of who lives and who dies and when, what does that say about abortion? What does that say about what we will say when we stand before God? And uh, what questions do you need to be asking about the fate of your eternal soul if that is your inevitable outcome of your life, if you are going to stand before God someday. And according to the Bible, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Prince, I hope that someday you too will come to repent and trust in Jesus. One last question. If God created man and woman, who created intersex? Who created intersex? Uh, well, um, that's a that's a great question, and there's been a, there have been a lot of a lot of ink spilled on this, a lot of video filmed about intersex. Um, there are several there are different conditions that are um, uh, that are I'm not, I'm not sure which condition they talk about Kleinfelter's um, disorder or um, or are you lumping transgender uh, gender dysphoria and things like that into that, but. Um, what we're, what we're looking at when we're talking about intersex conditions and things like that, first of all, my understanding is that the vast majority of them do identify as either male or female. Um, but for those who would be, let's say, hypothetically, someone who wouldn't identify as male or female, uh, that would be the exception that proves the rule. We're talking about a very small minority of persons, and um, we're talking about a world in, in which, um, although it was perfectly created good, we are unfortunately living in a world that is post-Genesis 3. And what that means is God's perfect creation has now been subjected to frustration, according to Romans 8. And you're going to see, um, you're going to see things like, uh, you're going to see instances that are outside the norms that God originally created. Uh, for example, there's disease, there, there's disformity, there are deformity, there, there are people who are born handicapped, there um but the fact that some people are born without a hand doesn't mean that God, God's original design for humanity didn't include two hands. Um, the same would be true for intersex. According to Jesus, God created mankind male and female. And so 
the existence of aberrations from that general rule um, and the fact that we ask questions about that show that there is a general rule and um, and and we have to talk about these exceptions as exceptions to those rules. And so um, I think even by asking the question, you're, you're presupposing that there is a norm against which an intersex person would, would sort of, uh, their experience would go against that norm. Um, but now we're getting a little too far afield. So let's continue on with the video. Hopefully that answered your question. But uh, let's let's move along, and I want to skip ahead to where he now talks about morality. Let's see if I can get there. Here we go. Okay, let's talk about morality. The of conservative, he helped as a good, even if they don't always vote. He recognized the right, Here we go. Conservative Christians and the politicians they support have failed on the easiest moral questions of our time. Hold on, the easiest moral questions of our time. Okay. For Hemant to say something like that, we have to suppose, we have to suppose that he has some objective moral standard by which he's operating. If not, then where on earth does he get this idea of an easy moral question? Because all you have to do, it's easy to tell that monopoly money is fake. Why? Take a dollar bill out, hold it up against a monopoly dollar bill. And you can easily see, you can tell which one is fake and which one's real because you can recognize the reality, the authenticity of the actual standard. Well, the same has to be true for morality. For there to be an easy moral question, there has to be a standard by which we judge whether or not our answer to that question is true or false. And since Hammond is saying that there are easy moral questions, I'm hoping that he's going to give um, a standard, a, a moral, an objective, universal moral standard by which we can judge whether or not something is moral or not. Let's see if atheism gives rise to such a standard. Should gay people be allowed to get married? Of course. Now, wait a second. He's talking about getting married. What's his definition of marriage? Again, we need a standard. Should gay people be allowed to get married? Of course. Well, up until about five minutes, uh, historically speaking, five minutes ago, which you know, uh, the Obergefell decision was decided in 2015, which again, in the span of human history is five seconds ago. It's, it's even, uh, it, it's even closer if you adopt the deep time uh, uh, framework of, of uh, Darwinian evolution that Hammond adopts. So up until about five minutes ago, everyone legally speaking, culturally speaking, civilizationally speaking, defined marriage as a man and a woman. Even if there were aberrations to that, of course, there's been polygamy. Um, there has been, a, there's been homosexuality going back to since, since ancient times. But in terms of defining what marriage is, it's always been a, a recognition of the complementarity between the male and female sexes. So, for him to say, should gay people get married? Well, it depends on what your definition of marriage is. Are you redefining marriage to, to say that it could be a man and another man or a woman and another woman? Could we expand the definition beyond that? Could there be two men and one woman? Could it be four men? Could it be, I'm not going to get into some of the other examples that I could get into, but the question is, who's defining marriage? And by what standard do we judge what counts as marriage and therefore who can enter into 
that arrangement. See, Hammett needs these categories if he's going to judge what counts. These are easy moral questions, so it should be no problem for him. That's not even complicated, but religion often says no. Should women be housewives and basically subservient to men? Do you hear the condescension there? Wives, do you hear that? Should women be housewives and basically subservient to men? Do you hear how he's categorizing? You stay-at-home moms, do you hear how he's categorizing what you do? Now, I want to be charitable here. Perhaps he's not saying all housewives are subservient to men. But even just the fact that he goes there immediately, it tells you something about his view of what you do, of how you raise your kids, of the arrangement you and your husband have. He associates it with being subservient. There's something deeply flawed um, about a worldview that immediately associates a mom who wants to spend time with her children all day, raising them, discipling them, maybe even educating them, um, caring for the household, um, establishing her home. He immediately associates that with being subservient, almost slave-like. I think there's something deeply flawed with that. But then again, I'm a Christian. And I recognize the equal dignity of men and women. I'm not, I'm not sure that Hemant, to be fair, I'm not sure that Hemant understands the Christian, the biblical perspective on the relationship between men and women. But we'll continue. No, they have their own lives. They are not here to serve us. Well, there are a lot of churches that might say women are equal, but whose treatment of women says something very different. Now, this is true. There are a lot of churches that get it wrong, but this is why for our norm, we don't go to, hey, what are all the churches doing? For our norm as to how women and men should be treated and treat each other, we go to God's word. We go to scripture. Churches can get that wrong. Absolutely. And he's going to talk about hypocrisy, which I don't know that we'll have time to get to today, but I hope we do. But um, But the fact that some Christians get this wrong does not mean that Christianity is flawed. And it's not a good reason for leaving Christianity. We need to go to the Bible and see what the Bible actually teaches. Should transgender people be treated with respect and have civil rights and be allowed to serve in the military? Some Christians still don't believe they exist. Should we make it harder for poor people to have health care? You know, Jesus was all about helping the poor. But Too many things. I got I to gotta pause. Some Christians don't even believe transgender people exist. So much to unpack there. For a Christian to say that God's design for humanity is to be gendered as either male or female and to deny the unscientific claim that gender is a spectrum is not the same thing as saying that someone with gender dysphoria doesn't exist. But acknowledging someone's existence is a far cry from, it, it doesn't therefore entail that you have to support everything that they believe about themselves, God, or the world. That's not how life works. We don't just take people's word for it um, and take their their um, their claims at face value. So if someone says, I feel this way about myself, we don't just say, oh, well, then you are that. If, if that's how we're going to deal with 
competing claims, Hemant should go to the Christian and say, well, you believe that you've had an experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit, that you know God personally. I have to accept that. I have to therefore believe that what you say is true. But that's not how Hemant operates. And that's not how we operate. That's not how anyone should operate. As a Christian, again, we're supposed to test claims. And we're supposed to test claims by an absolute standard of truth. As a Christian, I have a standard. It's called the Bible. It's an absolute epistemological starting point by which we can test knowledge claims. And we can also test claims of experience. If someone came to you and said, I feel like I'm a unicorn, you would rightly look at them with skepticism. In the same way, if a man comes to you and tells you that he feels like a woman, you'd be rightly skeptical of that claim as well. That doesn't mean we don't believe that they exist. And it certainly doesn't mean that we don't treat that person with dignity and respect. The Bible invented dignity and respect. Those are biblical categories. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. All people, all, all human persons are created in the image of God. When you treat a, a fellow image bearer with a lack of dignity, with a lack of respect, with a lack of, um, uh, when you dehumanize them and take away their rights or treat them unjustly, you, according to the Bible, if you, um, if you oppress the poor, you are insulting his maker. So these are biblical categories. We must treat everyone with dignity and respect, regardless of what they believe about God, the world, or themselves. But those are Christian categories. Hemant, you need a standard by which you can judge which behaviors are right and wrong. The Bible offers you that standard. You don't get there via atheism. All you have is your own preference. I hope that you can see that. Conservative Christians have fought against what they call socialism. Should oh. we discriminate against... Okay. Conservative Christians fight against socialism. Well, according to the Bible... I like how he says what they call socialism. Uh, first of all, according to the Bible, caring for widows and orphans and the poor, again, these are biblical categories, but they're not entrusted to the government. Now, I can look at Romans 13. I can go to my standard. I can go to my Bible, and I can see what is the proper function of government. I believe the government is legitimate. Uh, first of all, I do believe the government is a legitimate sphere of authority because the Bible teaches me that. Government was instituted by God, and and I bet I would actually have a much higher view of government than um, than Hemet would would have. Um, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't openly well I'm, uh, biblically speaking I shouldn't openly slander the ruler of my people because the Bible tells me not to. I'm supposed to treat him with respect or her with respect. But biblically speaking, the same Bible that tells me to respect authority also lays out what government is supposed to do and not supposed to do. Government is there to punish wrongdoing and to reward well-doing, to reward public morality, and in this way to maintain an orderly society so that we can live peaceful, peaceable, free lives. The government is not there to provide for your health care. The church does a much better job of that. Go down through history. Good grief. Look at Obamacare when that rolled out. Does anyone really want the same people? I mean, I'm getting off on a political discourse here, but does anyone really want the same people who are in charge of the DMV managing our health care? 
And to say that we don't want the government bureaucrats managing our healthcare is not the same thing as saying we don't want poor people to have access to healthcare. It just the does he know about Samaritan Ministries? Does he know about MediShare? He probably doesn't, but these are Christian ministries that are actually even alternatives, uh, Christian alternatives even to um, health insurance companies. But um, but but saying that we don't want the government running our health care is a far cry from saying we don't want everyone to have health care. Anyway, let's let's move on. Muslims and atheists and treat them like outsiders. Most young people, I think, grew up surrounded by friends who didn't always share their religious backgrounds. We all know religious minorities. We know they are good, decent, caring people. Good by what standard? And yet the way some pastors talk about non-Christians is appalling. Do you think your Jewish friend deserves to burn in hell forever? Well, your pastor probably does. Oh, it's worse than that, Hemet. According to the Bible, God is so righteous and so holy and so perfect that we all fall short of his standard. We all deserve the wrath and condemnation of God. Being Jewish doesn't increase your culpability before God. Going to a Christian church doesn't decrease your culpability before God. The Bible says we have all fallen short. The incredible truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we all deserve God's wrath and punishment. We all deserve hell. But the incredible good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners like you and me, folks who have fallen short. And I'm not talking by accident. I'm talking willingly. And Hammond, you've been around enough Christians. You've heard the gospel. I know that. You know enough to know that Christians don't single out Jewish people or single out atheists or single out gay people and say, you're especially deserving of hell. No, the Christian's first look is to himself or herself. I have to look in the mirror and say, Joel, you deserve hell. But God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son, his one and only son, to die on the cross for a sinner like you, to conquer death, rising from the dead, so that your sins would no longer rule your life. This is the good news of the gospel. And God loves the world so much that he freely offers that to everyone. The gospel is proclaimed freely. And anyone who hears it and believes it and trusts in Christ is saved. Whether you're Jewish today, whether you're atheist today, whether you're homosexual today, whether you're a nominal Christian today, the gospel offer is free. Let's keep going. We'll talk about some other specific moral issues in a bit, but if conservative Christians and Mormons and Southern Baptists and Catholics can't even get the simplest moral questions right, why would anyone trust their judgment on anything else? Number four. Okay, again, Hemant is presupposing a plumb line, a, a, a yardstick, by which we can measure moral claims. Um, given atheism, if no God, what is the standard for morality? Morality is by definition immaterial. Now it's played out in, in 
real time. Okay. Uh, uh, there are real people making moral judgments all the time and, um, interacting with one another in the world. And so, um, in that sense, morality is very tangible. It's very earthy, but the rules that govern our conduct are by definition immaterial and they're absolute. And so here's where I want to commend Hemant. His concern about morality is admirable. It's very good. But where I'm concerned about what he just said is that he's approaching these questions of morality without a standard, without a standard that extends beyond his two ears and past his nose. In other words, his standard is in his mind only. It's subjective. Even if he wants to say it's what's best for human flourishing, who defines human flourishing? Even if he wants to say it's what minimizes suffering, why? Who's to say? Now, as a Christian, I have an absolute standard. I believe God gives us that standard in his word. You might disagree with that because you might presuppose that the Bible is not God's word. But if you're going to do that, then you need to come up with another way of consistently defending your biblical or your moral framework without a biblical framework in such a way that your starting point comports with your conclusions, your moral conclusions. Uh, Hemet says that these questions are easy. He says that they are the easiest moral questions possible. If that's the case, he should have no problem demonstrating how he arrives at them from a standard that applies both to you and to me and to him. Or is he just making himself the arbiter of truth? And if Hemet wants to make himself the arbiter of morality and truth, then the next question you should ask is, Hemet, why should I care what you think? And I don't mean that in a snarky or disrespectful way. I mean that in all honesty and sincerity. Why should anyone care what he thinks about morality? Now, the next question has to do with hypocrisy. What I want to do is um, I want to just very quickly play what he says. I'm going to respond to it, and then we're going to end this video. Hypocrisy, the distance between what religions preach and what religious people do has never been larger. They say they care about the poor, but we see some church leaders and televangelists living these luxurious lifestyles. They say they love El Accurate. <laughs> As a Christian, I recognize there is a lot of hypocrisy among so-called Christians and among real Christians. I have a category for why that's wrong. I have a standard for that. It doesn't come from in here. It comes from God's word. Let's keep listening. LGBTQ people, but they spread lies about them, oppose civil rights for them. Lying is wrong. It's very hard to make their lives miserable. They oppose abortion, and yet more than a third of women who got abortions, according to one 2014 study, were evangelical or Roman Catholic, two groups that actively fight to block women from getting abortions that their own members are apparently getting. Pastors will deliver sermons about the importance of monogamy and the problems with porn, then get caught in sex scandals, sometimes with same-sex partners. Sometimes it's abuse involving kids. They're pro-life, but they're also pro-gun and pro-death penalty. Okay, we've got to pause right here. There's no possible way I have time to address each and every one of these claims. Let's just talk in general very quickly about hypocrisy. Why is hypocrisy wrong, Hemet? Why is hypocrisy wrong? See, this objection that Christians are hypocrites, and therefore, 
Uh, that's a good reason for leaving the church. Remember, we're talking about bad reasons to leave the church. Um, it, it doesn't hold water. It just doesn't add up because this objection relies on a presupposition that hypocrisy is objectively wrong. Hammond is not sitting here saying, you know, I happen to dislike hypocrisy. And if you like hypocrisy, that's fine. I just don't like it. I find it distasteful. No, what he's saying is hypocrisy. What he's implying is that hypocrisy is wrong. And therefore, this is a reason why people leave the church. I'm saying, me, Joel said a case, I'm saying that, um, that hypocrisy of Christians is not a good reason for leaving the church. I just realized I had that banner still up or the, the comment still up there. <laughs> um, this is why I need an AV person. Okay. So Christianity condemns hypocrisy as objectively wrong. Hypocrisy goes against the righteous nature of God and his commands. The Bible is chock full of condemnation of hypocrisy. Jesus's favorite kind of person to condemn we're hypocrites. And lest you think I'm in some way self-righteous here, I am the biggest hypocrite that I know, bar none, because I know my flaws. I know my hypocrisies. I sin every day. I am hypocritical in many ways, probably many ways that I don't even know. I need to repent. I need to bring my own sorry, sinful self before the throne of God's grace every single day, because I believe hypocrisy is wrong. Thank God that I have not only an, an absolute standard that condemns hypocrisy, thank God that I have a gracious Savior, a mediator between myself and God, the man Christ Jesus who intercedes for his people, who was never hypocritical, who was tempted in every way and yet without sin, according to the Bible. So I I have the I have to believe the bad news that I'm a hypocrite. And and I'll say the same to you. Have you have you dealt with your own hypocrisy? Have you dealt with the fact that hypocrisy is objectively wrong? And that if you were to search your own heart, you would have to find yourself condemned just like me. If so, then let me offer you the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to offer this to Hemant as well. Because given atheism, hypocrisy is just something that evolved apes do. Who's to say that it's objectively wrong? But you know what? We don't live like that. We don't live like the question of hypocrisy is up for grabs. We all know that hypocrisy is wrong. Well, that comports with biblical Christianity, but it does not comport with a system, a metaphysical and ethical system that excludes any absolute objective universal standard. Atheism has no such standard. Secularism has no such standard. Someone who begins and ends with a lack of belief in the God who says he's made himself obvious to everyone does not have such a standard. So I would urge Hammond, and I would urge every atheist, skeptic, and unbeliever, every nominal Christian, every Christian who is struggling with doubt, who's watching me right now, to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ, who is, who is, <laughs> my kids are coming in. <laughs> Um, who is children are a blessing. The Bible tells us that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ died for hypocrites like us. You are more sinful than, and hypoc hypocritical than you could possibly imagine. But according to the Bible, you are more loved than you could ever fathom. And God extends his love to you in this way. Today, he offers you 
this opportunity. If you will repent of your hypocrisy and immorality and sin and self-reliance and give your life over to Jesus Christ, he will forgive you of all your sins. And the Bible says he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness and give you eternal life. We've got one more question from Prince Maish Karachi. He says this, does the Bible speak of a marriage age? If not, what's your take on societies that practicing marriage of school age girls and older men? Uh, no, the Bible does not teach a marriage age. Um, obey the law. Don't commit indecency. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into that uh, because um I do want my kids to be able to watch this. Yeah, I would forced marriage, compelling people to do things against their will, uh, violating their freedoms and liberties. Um, there's there's going to be some cultural realities bound up with that. Arranged marriage is not the same as a forced marriage. Okay, but um, you know, look at something like Song of Solomon and see how uh, love and romance are bound up with marriage and um, and uh, the union of a man and a, a wife. And um, and it paints a very different picture. And and no, child brides and things like that. Of course, I condemn that. That's that's not a biblical practice. Young school age girls, no, that's that's reprehensible. That's disgusting. Uh, and biblically speaking, uh, it, it, it's no bueno, no good. So hopefully that that answers your question. Um, the only reason I seem like I'm trying to nuance this is because um, I'm I'm trying to think of a world in which I'm trying not to seed all authority over to the government, but the government has statutory uh, statutory laws in place for a good reason. It's because we recognize that childhood is a good thing. It's a sacred thing. And actually childhood is a biblical concept. Um, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. It's Jesus who gives dignity and worth to childhood and validates childhood as a meaningful stage of life. So we must not violate that by something like a forced marriage. No, that's reprehensible. That's evil. Hopefully that answers your question. And we covered a lot of ground. I've been going for over an hour or about an hour now. I've got to log off because as I speak, Brandon, your friendly neighborhood atheist is now beginning. I believe he's beginning to interview your friendly atheist, Hemet Mehta, the person whose thought I've been interacting with. Uh, we covered four of his 10 points. Maybe I'll get to the other six in the future. But um, please, if you like this video, like it, share it, pass it along. If you're listening later on on the podcast, go ahead and subscribe to the Think Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And this is not goodbye. This is just a this has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. I do hope you've heard something helpful. And that's all I have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think.